The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. You guys, I am so excited about today. I mean, we get to start a new series called I Love Your Word. We've been anticipating it. Um, got done with Philippians, and now we're starting through uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the largest, largest chapter in the, in the largest book of the Bible, and we're going to be spending the next 12 weeks working through it. So, couldn't be more excited. It's called I Love Your Word, a, a phrase that we see numerous times in Psalm 119. Uh, the book of Psalms, the longest book, right? Longest book in the Bible. Often, if you are looking for a book of the Bible and you open up your Bible, most likely you'll hit the book of Psalms, right? They tell you, just go right in the middle, but even if you go much to the left or much to the right, you're still in Psalms. Um, longest chapter in the longest book. There's 22 stanzas. It's a poem, actually. It's written in the form of a poem. There's 22 stanzas with eight verses in each stanza. Uh, the 22 stanzas, here's a fun thing. It corresponds to the, the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And every stanza in order of the alphabet, it's an acrostic, and every line in that stanza begins with that corresponding letter of the alphabet. Pretty fun, right? So your Bible is, is right, it, it, there's so many secrets in there, there's so many wonderful things to learn. You guys are going to learn so much uh, this summer through it. At least that's our prayer. So out of almost 1,200 chapters in the entire Bible scattered across 66 books over the course of thousands of years, Psalm 119 is the longest that has ever been written. And what is it about? What is this chapter all about? Of all of history, of all of scripture ever written, the longest thing, what can we spend our time speaking so much about? It's not, about, uh, it's not a poem about a, a lover or about sunset, but a passionate expression of, and conviction and love for God's word about the Bible. We're going to be talking about the Bible. This is an outpouring of affection for the words that are contained in scripture the revealed word from God to us, God speaking to us. God is a God who, who speaks. This is what separates uh, God, the God of the Bible, from other, um, from other cults, from other religions, is that our God is not silent. He is not deaf. He speaks to us. He communicates with us. He reveals to us his heart, his mind, his affections, his feelings, his intentions, his goals, his, his wisdom. He reveals it to us, and we see his revealed will here in God's word. And we're going to learn about his word. We're going to learn about his Bible and what it has to say to us. And I want to give you a brief introduction this morning because there's so, it's, uh, it's so hard what to talk about, what not to talk about. As I studied for this sermon, and I checked with the tech guys earlier, and I said, how much battery life is on my mic? And they said 10 hours. And I said, Okay, I think that's going to be okay for this morning, but let's see if we can get, if we can get through this. I want to give a brief introduction for this series, for the Word of God, why we study, why it's important, and then I want to get into kind of our, our, first, our first week for that. First, here's the introduction. We call, it, we call the Bible the Word of God, the Word of God. What do we mean by this? Well, here's a scripture among many other places. Here's one, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. There's this idea, scholars and, and, and theologians call it inspiration, this idea that, that Scripture is inspired, that it's breathed out by God. It's the actual word and breath of God communicated to us. And it comes to us with clarity, with authority, with perfection, 
It is His Word to us. And this means that nothing in the Bible, nothing in the Bible is merely created by the desires of men. Men did not sit down and say, what do I want to write about today and begin to write and then hand it down to us to read. These words were written by men, and some say, well, this is the Word of God, um, and in their confusion or wanting to get more understanding, they say, which, which parts were written by Jesus? I say, well, none, no, none of it was written by Jesus. Jesus didn't pen any of these words. And well, how could it be the Word of God? And it's an interesting thing. How, what, how do we think about this? What does it mean that men were writing the Word of God? You know, they, here's what it's not. It doesn't mean that these men were like robots in a trance, that they were just being controlled by God as they wrote these words down. It doesn't mean that they were in some sort of spiritual stupor, kind of carried into some... Uh, spiritual, uh, out-of-body experience where they didn't know what was going on with them. The inspiration of God's Word means that God took a, a person with their unique personalities, their unique education, their unique gifts and skills, and used them. The Holy Spirit awakened their mind. He strengthened their memory. He prompted them to write exactly what God intended for them to write. And He protected them in, the, in their uh, work of writing Scripture from the influence of sin in their writing. And he guided them in the expression of their thoughts even as they wrote. And so these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write to us and communicate to us exactly what God intended for them to write. This is the Word of God. This is the inspired Word of God, and we have it. And it's such a blessing. You know, the Bible is, is not just a mix of of complex ideas and complex theologies and complex thoughts. It is a recording of historical events that actually happened. History. There was a man born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Thousands of people saw him and personally knew him. He performed miracles. He died and was buried and he rose again. And he appeared to more than 500 people after his resurrection who were eyewitnesses to him being alive. They saw the event and simply passed on what they came to know as truth, as actually happening. They pass it on to their dearest friends. They wrote it down. They pass it on through verbal communication. Christianity is not about myths or it's not about great storytelling. It's not about warm um, <clears throat> ideas and notions. These are actual actual events that God predicted, he fulfilled, and he inspired people to write about them so that they would be sustained so that we could have them today. And so when we say that the Bible is God's word, we are saying that there is nothing more sure, nothing more weighty, nothing more important, nothing more necessary to know in our life than the words contained in scripture. And to, to disbelieve any word in scripture is to disbelieve God himself. To obey any word in Scripture is actually to obey God himself. Do you see what this is getting at? That if this is God's communication to us, his revelation to us of who he is, what he is like, what he desires of us, and how we ought to live, think, and feel, then we should get to know it. And I'm excited to get to know it with you. And this is a problem because we Christians, we love our Bible, don't we? We we. we we buy many of them. We buy every time a new one comes out with it has bigger margins or bigger words or, or more references. We buy it. We, we love it. 
But by and large, we don't know what it says because we don't read it. Here's some, here's some, some survey statistics. More than 50% of all Christians, 50% are unable to name the four gospel writers in Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm not, I'm not in that 50. I hope you're not either. 82% of all Christians believe that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is actually in the Bible. Believe it or not, it's, it's, it's not in the Bible. 60% of all Christians are unable to name more than four of the Ten Commandments. And believe it or not, 12% of Christians surveyed believe that Joan of Arc is Noah's wife. This is true. These are, these are true things. These are true, true numbers. I don't make them up. But from a personal testimony, I mean, from a personal testimony of, of my life, uh, becoming a Christian in college, uh, there has nothing been, nothing that has been more influential in, my, in sustaining my growth and my relationship with Jesus than my personal, intentional time reflecting, reading, studying God's Word. Not a single thing. Now, what that means is, even more, my time reading God's Word, reflecting on it, is more, has been more influential and beneficial than community, hanging out with you all. That's very good. More than worship at church, more than personal discipleship one-on-one with a mentor, more than reading Christian books and commentaries and, and what others uh, have to say about the Bible. Nothing replaces getting down and reading God's Word. This is God's Word to us, His inspired, perfect, wonderful Word to us. Reading the Bible is what led me to my coffee addiction, right? remember becoming a Christian and sitting down with a close friend, and, and he said, let's read the Bible. I, I, did, I, I knew very little about the words contained in Scripture. I knew about the Bible. I was raised in a Christian church. I knew much about the stories, but I'd never known personally. God, God had never spoken to me personally through his words. I'd never meditated on it. I'd never digested it and never chewed it up for myself, never said, what does this mean for me? God, what do you have to say to me? And so I started meeting with a friend, and we met every day of the week except on weekends, and we did this all through college. And I calculated how many cups of coffee that I probably had with this guy in the course of my time. And I kid you not, it's, it's close to like a 1,000 cups of coffee <laughs> reading the Bible. And then that guy married my sister, and, uh, and you now he's my brother-in-law, and it's awesome. So, and then we stopped reading the Bible together. <laughs> so, that also is a true story. So where are we going? All right, that's kind of the introduction. We believe that this is God's word. And therefore, we base everything we do in ministry, in play, in life, in everything. Everything is derived from this belief that this is God's word to us. And so everything that we do is... is is, a, is an overflow of our belief and our conviction in God's word. And we want to learn about what it has to say. You may be on a journey with us, whether you believe that or not, or maybe you've never even had that paradigm. You've never even thought in these terms. Well, I hope that this summer is a productive summer for you. I hope it is a summer to remember. We want it to be a summer to remember for you as you get into God's word. And I believe that as you do, if you take this step with us, and if you work through these words, and if you give yourself to getting in front of Jesus and getting in front of his scriptures and chewing on it, digesting it, saying, God, what do you have to say to me? You will change. You will know Jesus. Your perspectives, your dreams, your hopes, your fears, everything will be put in the right perspective. And we want to help you. We saw, you know, if you, in the welcome area, you may have seen a couple resources that we've made available. One is this journal that we had made for you guys. Um, 
it's a journal that's going to walk through this whole summer. Um, on the left side of the page is, is one stanza of Psalm 119, and it goes in alphabetical order. And then the other side of the page is, is just blank, is, is line space for you to journal. This is something that you can get. Uh, it's $3 out there uh, for the journal. Pick one up. You don't have money today, but you still want to get started. Go and pick one up. Make sure you drop off some money next time. Um, also, there's a book out there to supplement your study. It's called Taking God uh, at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. If you're not familiar with his writing or that book, it's a great supplement. Much of the questions uh, and structure of this series is kind of based off of some of the things in his book, and so I want to give credit there. Um, but you, if you want, you can get a book and a journal for $10, or you can get the journal for $3. Uh, but I hope you guys will take advantage of that. Uh, I'm going to be going along with it. I've already started, and uh, I, that's, that's going to be my summer, my summer reading, Psalm 119, just sitting in there every week and working through it, and I hope that you'll join us. Here's where we're going. We're asking three questions, and we're going to answer three questions. What should we believe about the Bible? The Bible is true. The Bible is good. The Bible is right. We're going to learn about that. We're going to talk about that. What does this mean? We're going to also ask, what should we feel about the Bible? We should delight in the Bible. We should desire it, and we should depend on it. These are things that we feel about the Bible, these affections for God's Word. And lastly, what do we do with the Bible? We meditate on it. We proclaim it and we obey it. And you're thinking, that's only nine. We've got 12 weeks. What is true about God's revealed word is true about God's incarnate word. Everything that is true about the Bible is also true about Jesus. And so if God's word is true, and God's word is right, and God's word is good, then Jesus is also right, true, and good. And so we're going to take three weeks and talk about Jesus is right, good, and true. Jesus, we ought to we ought to delight and desire and depend on Jesus, and we ought to meditate on, proclaim, and obey Jesus. Everything is pointing to Christ. And so even in the Old Testament, even these words are true about Jesus. Um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 1 says, I, I, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So what is true about God's written word is true about Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to go. So ready to start? Yes. Take that as a yes. Sorry, I don't often ask for responses, and you're like, what do we do? I don't know what I say. <laughs> so God's word is true. Let's go to Psalm 119. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read in, in uh, we're not going to read in the whole chapter, obviously, uh, starting in verse 89. And we're going to jump around uh, a lot because there's no real clear uh, system to it from start to finish. Um, but I'm going to start reading in verse 89. Uh, I'm going to read that whole stanza. Psalm 119. Starting in verse 89. Forever, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day. For all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have given me life. I am yours Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait and destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Let me pray for us as we continue. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that has been revealed to us, preserved for us, given to us even this morning. I pray that it would stir our hearts that it would convince our minds, that it would give us courage and strength to, to obey it. Teach us something new today. Remind us of, of what we ought to believe about your word. 
It is true. It is so true for us. And because it is true, it's valuable. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to just talk real briefly about what does this mean? Because God's word is true, what does it mean? Here's the first thing. Because God's word is true, it's the most relevant thing that you can read every day. The most relevant, the most important, the most closely related to reality in your life. The best thing that you can read is the word of God every single day. Your word, he says, your word is fixed in the heavens. Fixed in the heavens. It is, it is there. It is permanent. It is everlasting. It is eternal. It's not going anywhere. It continues to be as relevant today as it was the day it was written. And you know that there is so much challenge to this, right? So much challenge to this today and thinking about it in this way. Not only we think sometimes that not only is the Bible not relevant, it's, it's outdated, it's old-fashioned. It's become uh, so far from current, modern contextualization that it's almost entirely irrelevant. Even one very outspoken and popular pastor recently said about God's Word that the church will continue to be even more irrelevant if it continues to quote from letters 2,000 years old. And so there's this idea that it's, it was really good for the time that it was written in. It was really good for them, but for now we need something fresh. We need something new. We need something that can speak into our life and what we're facing, what we're challenged with today. But God's word speaks from an eternal perspective. It's not locked in space and time. It's not locked in a particular generation, but endures, our scripture says, it endures to all generations. What was true in God's word for your parents and their parents and and generations back is good for you. And what is good for you is going to be true also for your children and your grandchildren and everyone who comes after you. It says in verse 90, you've established your faithfulness endures, he says, you, you, for all generations, and you've established the earth, and it stands fast. To stand fast here, it says, you, you've established the earth. It stands fast. It means to stand firm, to remain, to maintain a position, to be immovable, almost as if ready for battle. It's, not, it's got a front, and it's not moving at all. God's word is, is constant for all of eternity. Think about it like this. God's word speaks to us in the way, speak to us in a certain way as if we knew everything that God knows. That's the way we would speak. If we knew everything that God knows, we would speak exactly the way that the scriptures speak to us. It speaks about life the way we would speak about life if we knew, if we were there when the universe was created. You establish the earth. God established the earth, and it stands fast. He created everything. He was there when it was made because it was out of his command and his direction that the earth and and all the universe was created. And so the word speaks to us from this kind of perspective. Perspectives as if knowing everything that can ever be known. You know, what do we normally think about that is true? And normally, when, when we think about the future or our present or even our past, and often it's very untrue. You know, I'm often very wrong in my thinking, the way I think about things, and then maybe I get a new perspective and I say, wow, I've really grown in my thinking. What I thought last year, I'm not the same person. I've, hopefully I've matured, I've gained some wisdom. So the way my mind works right now is immature in perspective in relation to what it will be hopefully in a year, five years from now. 
So I'm always changing and I'm always growing and I'm always, I'm fluid, so the way my mind thinks. What about emotions? Have you ever been tricked by your emotions? How have, you, have you ever felt, that was an overreaction? Have you ever felt, why do I feel that way? I know that that was wrong or destructive or unwise or a little, maybe just misguided. <coughs> have you ever been tricked by your emotions? So our emotions even, however beneficial and good and God-given, can be misleading, can trick us. They are not fixed. Our emotions are not fixed in the heavens. They are not immovable. They are very much moved, depending on circumstances and, and life changes and, and, and other people. So internal and external things change how we feel. I'm often confused by my circumstances. Something happens to me today, and I say, God, what does this mean? How ought to I respond to this? And those are things, our, our thinking, our feeling, our circumstances, those are things that often determine our reality for us. What is true? What are we thinking? How do we feel? What's happening to me right now? It feels like reality because this is what's going on. I can't see it any other way. I can't see life any other way than what I see it right now. So for me, this is reality. But those things are changing. And so in that sense, what is real for me today is going to be different tomorrow. As my feelings change and my thoughts, as I mature, as my circumstances change. But God's word, it's true. It's firmly fixed. It's immovable. It's constant. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It will never change. Look at what uh, our, our writer says in, in verse uh, 151. He says, You are near, O Lord, and your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. You know what's going on here, which I really love about this? Uh, he is preaching to himself. He is saying, he's experiencing trouble. If you read some verses before that, he's experiencing trouble. He's being pursued by others violently. He's feeling abandoned by God. And he's feeling what you and I have probably felt before, maybe sometimes even often. Maybe you're feeling that right now, which is, God, where are you? What is real? Tell me what is true. And so he's preaching to himself. He's saying, you are near. He says, my life changes. And today, right now, I don't know where I am but I know where you are. You are near. You are constant. I know that your commandments are true, and I know that your testimonies and everything that you have spoken and written was there forever. You don't look at my life. God doesn't look at our life and say, now what do we do here? Let me cook up something really good. No, God's word is eternal. The perspective is eternal because he is eternal. His commandments are there forever. They were founded forever ago. God doesn't have to play catch-up. He doesn't have to think up of something. He doesn't look at our life and say, well, this is a doozy. What do I do about this? There is nothing that we can bring to God, and God would say, what? How did this happen? What do we do about this? Nothing. And this is what he's saying in Psalm 119. He's saying, my life changes all the time, and right now I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's around the corner. I feel like I'm in the shadows. But you are true. You are near. You are constant. Your words are forever. I can trust in these. It's the most relevant thing that we can read every day because our life changes and God's word never does. So we need to become so intimately close to it, so intimately familiar with God's word so that we can preach to ourselves throughout the day, so that we can have 
so we can maximize our joy with God, so that we can avoid danger, so that we can delight in his truth, so that we can be built up into maturity. His circumstances, his emotions, his thoughts, they're all trying to tell him what is true. They're saying, this is what's true, and this is what's true, and this is what's true. And he's saying, no, God's word is true. That's fixed. That's immovable. That's been there forever. That's what I'm going to trust in. You've established them. You do not change. And to use an even broader metaphor, the poet says in verse 96, he says, look at this. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now, this is an odd sentence, isn't it? Uh, I've seen a limit to all limitless things, but you are even better than that. This is, this is God's word is the infinity plus infinity idea. You get it? Whenever you're trying to really show your affection or tell someone you love them, you've done this, maybe, I don't know. Hopefully you haven't. I love you so much. I love you infinity. I love you. And then you're thinking, nothing's bigger than infinity, but I got to come up with something. I love you infinity plus one. And then you're thinking, oh, they got me. Nothing is bigger than infinity plus one. And then you find something, and it's infinity plus infinity. But it's nonsense, right? Okay. God's word is infinity, the infinity plus infinity. Even when, in our perspective, when we think, see things that are without error, without fault, that are perfect, everything from our perspective, we say, no, this is good, and I know this is good. God's word is better. This, is, this brings me joy. God's word is better. God's word is the infinity plus infinity. And he says, I've seen a limit to all perfect things, even things that are good that I delight in. Even those things have a limit. But your commandments are exceedingly broad. They, they re, I do not see an end to them. I cannot get on the other side of your truth. There is no distance that I can go with you where I get to the end of the line and I run out of resources. But everything else has an end. Everything else has a limit, even wonderful, perfect things. But not your word. God's word is the infinity plus infinity to the best behavioral counselor in the world. God's word is the infinity plus infinity to the best financial advisor in the whole world. God's word is the infinity plus infinity to the best day at the beach, the best companion, the best friend, the best spouse, the perfect situation in our life that we can think of and that we can craft together. God's word is better than that. Without without discrediting and shaming any of those good things, but knowing that, God, your word has no limit. All those other things have a limit. They're going to fall short, but not your word. So we can go to God's word in its entirety, knowing that it's the most relevant thing. Whatever we are going through, we can go to God's word and say, I may change, but you do not change. Speak to me. Teach me. Show me what life is really like. Teach me reality. Because right now, my reality is, does not look good. So teach me a different reality. One that is eternal. One that has been fixed in the heavens forever. Here's another thing. Let's go on to the next point. Is that God's word, since God's word is true, it determines all other truths. It's by your appointment they stand this day for all things, in verse 91, all things are what? Your servants. All things are your servants. 
God's word stands over everything in the universe, not the other way around. Nothing stands in the presence of God or his word and teaches it anything. Nothing adds to God's word. Everything is a servant to God's word. Every truth, every good, every wisdom is subordinate to God's word. There's a man named Galileo. I think you know him. You've heard of him. 17, early 17th century. He had a mentor. His name was Copernicus. Maybe you know this too. But did you know what they do? Copernicus, he had this revolutionary idea that perhaps, just maybe, spitballing here, that the sun was the center of the universe and all the stars and the earth rotated, the earth rotated on an axis around the sun and it took one, every year it would go around the sun one time. Now this challenged the belief at the time, it challenged the, the Roman Catholic Church's belief that the earth was the center of the universe that was fixed in the heavens and everything rotated around the earth. And people thought he's crazy. And he couldn't prove it. And then something happened in 1609. Galileo invented a telescope and he looked up into the skies and he saw the valleys and the mountains of the moon and he saw the crevices and he saw the terrain and he saw the Milky Way galaxy and he saw Jupiter and something was happening with Jupiter and he says, what are those? And he saw four moons orbiting around Jupiter. And he said, maybe we are orbiting around the sun. And he was labeled a heretic he was put on trial, and he was imprisoned indefinitely where he would die. And he says this, Who dare say that we know all there is to be known? And then he says, I give infinite thanks to God for being so kind as to make me the first observer of, marvelous, of, of marvels kept hidden in obscurity for all generations. Galileo said, if it were not for you telling me the truth, showing me the truth, all of us would be in darkness forever. We wouldn't know the truth. Thank you for revealing to me what is true. Because now, seeing when knowing what is true, I, will now, I can know reality. And, I, and, and it's by this truth that I go about seeing all other kinds of reality, all other kinds of truth. And it took the church a long time to get there, to realize maybe he was right. All things are your servants. All things, do, all things do what you tell them to do. All people exist and breathe because God sustains them with his power. You know what the Bible says? And here's where it becomes maybe difficult for some, but it's something we have to have integrity with and really confront. The Bible claims to be the story of the universe. The Bible claims to tell the story of everything that is. You, me, life economics, everything. It claims to be the final test of every truth. Everything that we come to, to trying to find truth, the Bible claims to be the final test. God's word's not subject to human revision or amendment based on cultural changes. We do not change the Bible as our times change, as our circumstances change. All alternative opinions from God's word, everything that is different from God's word is wrong. This is what the Bible says. This isn't Pete at Holy Cross telling you some, some, some culturally divisive thing. This is me telling you what the Bible has to say about itself, that it is the final test. There are no variations of the truth. Truth is not, despite what some, some might think, is not fluid. 
It does not change. Truth is true. All things you're serving. God always stands over us, and we never stand over the word of God. So there is no waiting. And this is the comfort that comes from this, that all truths, truth, because the Bible is true, it determines all of the truths. There is no waiting to see who wins in this. There is no waiting to see, like, you know, this struggle between either secularism or uh, immorality or the world. What's going to happen to the word of God? What's going to happen to scripture? What's going to happen to God? What's going to happen to the church? Who is going to win out on this? There is no waiting. Not only is God's word eternal, when we realize what God already knows and what he has already revealed, we will realize that all things we will realize from that perspective. And we will see things as they truly are for the first time. This true perspective. And we'll be amazed. I think actually a couple things are going to happen when, when we know everything that God knows. When we see things in, in our, when our minds are perfected, when our bodies are perfected, where we are revealed everything that has been going on, there will be a time when we see that our, our beliefs, our practices, our habits, and everything will be brought to light, and we will, on that day, probably have a great deal of shame, a great deal of remorse, a great deal of regret, saying, I wish I would have done it differently. But there will also be, I think, rejoicing in the areas where we were consistent with God's word. I think there will be celebration Whatever is in harmony with God's word is, is true, and we rejoice in it. Whatever is out of harmony, we need to feel sad about. We need to have remorse about. We need to make adjustments to come in line with God's word. One day, everything will be made plain to see, and it will be consistent with God's word. I'm not afraid of people finding out stuff and, you know, hey, did you hear that in the Middle East, they found a tomb. And on the tomb, it says Yeshua. And that was Jesus' name. They found Jesus. Like, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't make me afraid. Because I know that when you match up anything with God's word, nothing is going to change the truth. So we shouldn't be afraid of, of things that happen. This is what God tells us in his word. Don't be afraid. My plans are fixed in the heavens. We know the future. We know God's wisdom. We know his plans. We know that he is good, that he reigns forever. That it stands firm from all generations. That he is plotting our joy. That he is plotting our circumstances. That he is working all things out for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. That he is doing these things and this is the truth and we don't need to be afraid. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. This is what this means, that we believe that, that God's word is true, and so it determines all of the truths. It's when we, we need to see life through Scripture, the lens of Scripture, not the other way around. We don't look at the Bible with our life and our perspective and try to figure out what it means. We look at Scripture tr determining in our best of our ability, with the best knowledge and skill that we have, determining what is going on here. What is God saying about himself? What is he saying about me? And how can I live my life as an overflow of what I've learned? And that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying, I don't just see it rise. I know because it's, it's illuminating everything in my path. 
God's word is the fountain that overflows and hits everything that it touches, everything in front of it. So it determines all other truths. And lastly, because God's word is true, it can be trusted. I mean, we can trust God's word. We can trust in God's word with our life. And I hope that you do. I hope that through the course of this summer, you will learn to better trust God's word. Coming to God's word and saying, God, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I trust you. I'm grieving. I'm sad. I'm confused. I'm troubled, but I trust you. And I trust what your word says. When we are saying that it can be trusted, we mean that God can be trusted, that he is dependable, that he is faithful, that he is unchanging. If we deny what the Bible says and any word of it, as we come to it and say, I don't know about that, we're really... We have, we have two options. We're making two conclusions. One, we're saying the Bible isn't true. So it's not true. It's, it's claiming to be true, but it's not true. Or we're saying God is not dependable. And both of those are scenarios that are not Christian at all. But can the Bible be trusted? This is really the important question, isn't it? Can the Bible really be trusted? If it can be trusted, we owe it our life. If not, then we need to, we have no sense of discussing it. I mean, we are wasting our time. I am running a, a, a fraud. I am wasting your time. You are wasting your life. If the Bible is not true, then shame on us. And we should, we should only be, read it for entertainment. We should read it no more passionately than we would, might read a Harry Potter book. Maybe that's not a good analogy. Maybe you're thinking, you don't know how I read Harry Potter books. It's pretty passionate. But is it true? Uh, this is the first question to ask, because whatever we decide on this question, is the Bible true, uh, will determine the point of every other question. Now, if my, if my three-year-old son wakes up one morning uh, with his Buzz Lightyear costume on and says, I'm Buzz Lightyear, I, I, I take a picture, I take a video, I call my wife in and say, look how adorable this kid is. You know, and if he's 10 years old and he comes out in his Buzz Lightyear costume, I say, okay, you know, still a boy. But uh, maybe, you know, I might think this is getting a little old, but okay, uh, do what you need to do. Now, if he's 21 <laughs> and he still claims to be Buzz Lightyear, uh, we've gone beyond the point of cuteness and, and we need to seek some help, okay? <laughs> this reminds me of a challenge that C.S. Lewis again gives to us in the story of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where if you remember this story, uh, there's some siblings and they're uh, spending time at, a, at uh, an aunt's house and, and Lucy one of the girls, uh, the younger girl, she claims to enter through a wardrobe into another world. And through this wardrobe, through the back, you go past the coast and you, you, you come into Narnia. And Narnia is covered in snow. It, in this world, she has tea with a fawn. And she, uh, half goat, half man, right? She discusses her day with a family of beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they're named, aptly named. And even hears tales of a white witch that put a curse on Narnia, where it's always winter and never Christmas. And she comes back through the wardrobe, and she tells her siblings about this journey she's been on, this adventure. Of course, they think she's crazy. They dismiss her. They, they tell her, it's not funny anymore. Stop telling these lies. They mock her. They ridicule her for telling such crazy stories. And she insists over and over that she's telling the truth. And an old professor who lives there, uh, he, he's the owner of the house. He confronts the siblings and says, you really have three options listening to your sister here. She's a liar, this option number one, and, and therefore she should, she should just be ignored. She's a liar and just ignore her. The other option is she's crazy and delusional and you need to help her. You need to seek help. But really the only third option, the, the third option is that she's telling the truth. 
And if she's telling the truth, then you need to believe her. And you need to trust her. And everything you do from this point forward needs to be lived out of that trust and belief. The same is true for the Bible. Those are our three options. It's not a mix of complex ideas about life and religion. It's not a good moral story. It is a story about actual events that really happened that claim uh, to be the source and guide and sustenance for everything. It claims to tell the story of everything that is. What will you do with the Bible? Will you reject it? Will you be entertained by it and merely look at it as if it's some kind of good story and miss out on the hope and promise that is, that is communicated in it? Or will you submit to its authority? Will you believe it and trust it in it? And will you put your life under becoming a servant to all that God has said? Those are the three options. I hope that as God leads us and encourages us in this series, seeing that it not only is it true, but it's all of those other things that we're going to get to, that our heart just swells with, with love, that we would be like this, this poet and this psalmist that, that writes the longest poem, the longest book, the, in, the longest chapter and the longest book ever written in Scripture. And it's all about, I love what you're telling me. Tell me more. Teach me more about who you are. Tell me more about my life. Tell me more about you. Tell me more about how I can depend on you because this is good. I want to eat all this up. My whole life depends on it. So here's my prayer for you this summer. I pray that your mind is awakened, that for the word of God to know the treasures that are found in God's word, that you would start to think differently and you would start to think in ways that maybe you've never thought before, that you would really wrestle with these words, that you would go through this journal, that you would read his, the word, uh, that you would engage personally with these things and make that prayer yourself. Pray, God, would you, would you, would you sharpen my mind to think, to comprehend? Would, could I have a clarity about what you're trying to teach me? My another prayer is that you, your affections would be filled for the word of God, that you would delight in it, that you would desire in it, that you would depend on it, that your life would, would surround yourself around God's word, that you would desire it so much that you would pursue it greater than anything you pursue in your life. That if you want to, uh, if you want to seek something in your life, you usually go out and get it and you, you make sacrifices in order to do it. My prayer is that you would make sacrifices to pursue God's word because it's the most relevant thing that you can read. And lastly, your courage is strengthened. I pray that you will do what it says with joy, that we will increasingly become people who love God's word, who read what it says, and have the courage to obey what it says out of joy, knowing that it's for our good and for God's glory. And in the process of all this, I pray that you would get to know Jesus in ways you've never gotten to know before, that you would just this summer will be marked by a pursuit of, a trust in, and a love for Jesus unlike you've ever seen. Let's pray together. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.